Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Deja Vu. Recorded by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, David Crosby. The Grammy winner and two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee will join us in a few moments to talk about his multi-decade career from The Birds, CSN, his solo work, and much more. Part 1. Well, Scott, here we are, the 75th episode of the COVID-19 era, right? We've done <laughs> 75 of these since the lockdown began? Let's see. Uh, we do about 50 episodes a year, and it's been three it's years, been year. I think. Yeah, so. it's been three years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, uh, I I don't even think it's worth asking how you're doing um, at this point. We No one's wearing pants, and we're all at home. We get it. <laughs> totally, yeah. Stir crazy, but still alive, um, so... Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it at this point. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, one thing that I think we're all figuring out how to make more use of is technology, how to connect ourselves when we're not together. As many of our listeners know, you and I are not standing together in the same room right now. We are uh, brought together by the magic of telephone slash internet slash pro tools technology. Indeed. Um, but this is also part of the business model of the magical people over there at Pearl Snap Studios. Yeah. Um, so even if you're locked down and can't make it to your neighborhood studio or um, hop on a flight to New York, L.A., or Nashville, you can send an MP3, uh, any kind of rough recording you have, uh, you know, via the interwebs over to <laughs> Pearl Snap Studios. They can put that thing together on their own without you even having to be there in the room breathing on them. And then they send <laughs> that thing back to you. Uh, via the same very internet that you sent your file to them in the first place. It's an actually uh, a pretty uh, amazing model, and uh, I think it's going to take off. <laughs> I, th- I think the, I think old Justin's on to something over there. and I, I think he is too. I, I think the, the best thing about Justin is that he has given us a world where someone can sit in their home, write a song, fine-tune it, get it all to where they feel like it's done, send it to Justin. He can send them a completely professional, pitchable demo, and at no point in any of that process does anyone have to put on pants. <laughs> I like how you say Justin gave us that, that world, because I think now we have to give him credit for like inventing the internet. Yeah, um, he did. Which- which he may have done. He's a smart guy. <laughs> he is a smart guy. And uh, he definitely knows what he's doing when it comes to uh, singing, when it comes to playing, when it comes to producing, when it comes to arranging. This dude is a total whiz. He is one of the best. He works with the best. Um, and so go to PearlSnapStudios.com if you want to get one of your songs uh, made into a professional sounding demo. And make sure to tell them that Songcraft recommended you and you'll get the old Songcraft disc. Actually, we can even do you better than that. When you go to the website, there is a spot for a discount code. And if you put in that discount code, Songcraft, 
then you will get $25 off of your first demo. How about that? Wow. Uh, I'm glad to know that information. I don't appreciate you contradicting me. <laughs> well, I'm not next to you, so you can't do anything about it. Pants or no pants. <laughs> you, you can't get to me now. Uh, um, there will be no pantsless wrestling for us today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so back to uh, Pearl Snap. Uh, yeah. no, but uh, there's a coupon code, Inner Songcraft, and you can get like a deal right there. It's not You don't even have to go in there and talk too much about, about me and Scott if you don't know us personally. Just enter the code in there. Um, even if you're not listening to this right now, uh, feel free to put in the code SONGCRAFT. See what I did? Um, and get your $25 off uh, because, hey, we're friends with the people at Pearl Snap. We're not just saying it. Very good. Well, Paul, we've got uh, something special today. We've got a new milestone. You know, here on Songcraft, we have spoken with a number of people who are uh, inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I don't know if we have ever had anyone who has been inducted twice into the Rock and Roll Hall of wow. Fame, but that changes today with David Crosby, who was inducted as both a member of the Birds and as a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, that's uh, that's that's quite the the notable achievement. That's something that you could really use at a cocktail party to tell people, "Hey, here's a fun fact about me." Yes, I think you could. <laughs> and I kind of just want to say, "Hey, David, save some like trophy shelf space for the other guys, man. Like, <laughs> you, know, you got to take up the whole Hall of Fame at some point." <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, pretty uh, pretty cool for us to uh, to chat uh, with uh, with a guy like David Crosby. I um, actually. Uh, as most people know who follow us, I, um, in addition to doing this podcast, am uh, in the book world. I'm a book publisher, um, and uh, David and I had a meeting at a restaurant right before this whole COVID-19 thing happened, um, which you should have had a clue about that since I said at a restaurant. Um, but uh, <laughs> we... Um, we got together to talk about something uh, work-related, and uh, we were chatting about different things, and he was talking about some other songwriters, just conversationally, that he uh, is really into, and he specifically mentioned Mark Cohn and Sean Colvin, and was talking about how impressed he was with both of them as a writer. And at the time, I think we had recently put out our Songcraft episode uh, with Sean Colvin, and so I told him, I said, oh, I... I uh, have this podcast um, called Songcraft. My buddy Paul and I talked to uh, to different songwriters, and we just had Sean Colvin on the show, and she was lovely, and she's fantastic. And and he kind of goes, um, "Hello, I'm a songwriter. You could ask me to be on your show, which I love. <laughs> like, yeah, dude, I would beg you to be on my show. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I loved the uh, I love just sort of the uh, the sincerity of that. Like, hey, man, I want to talk about songs because this is a guy." Totally who um, he loves songs and songwriting as much as he did yeah. uh, in the 60s. You know, today he hasn't lost one ounce of his passion for it. Yeah. And first of all, I, I wish it was always that easy to get guests on the show. You know, you just <laughs> right. throw out that you have a podcast and they go, hey, no, I, I want to do that. Um, <laughs> I wish it were always that easy. Um, but yeah, there were so many moments in this conversation when, you know, how much he loves songs just just came out you know and i it, i sort of felt like hey this is a kindred spirit um it's the whole reason that we do this is because we love it uh and to hear someone who's been a part of so many great songs and a part of the industry for so long and a part of so many great movements in music um still just kind of echo that just just an unbridled passion uh for what he does was was really awesome <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, very cool to uh, to see somebody who still has the the same the same sort of feeling of discovery that you got when you first started, you know, digging into your parents' records or hearing cool songs yeah. on the radio. I mean, you know, he is he is absolutely held on to it. So, um, very happy to to have this episode today. And you know, I think all we this is our new strategy. All we have to do is have lunch um, with potential guests. Yeah. So if you want to maybe try to set up lunch with, uh, Paul McCartney, I'll try to set up lunch with Bruce Springsteen and then we'll totally just okay. drop it into the conversation and we'll get those guys in no time. I'm sure. Well, we'll, I'll at least do a zoom lunch with Paul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Hey, you know what? Tell him I said, hi. Part two. David Crosby first made his mark as a songwriter in the birds with eight miles high. Why? Renaissance Fair, Lady Friend, and Draft Morning. After joining forces with Stephen Stills and Graham Nash to form one of Rock's first supergroups, he penned additional classics such as Guinevere, Wooden Ships, and Long Time Gone. By the time the group added Neil Young to the lineup, David was contributing new material such as Deja Vu and Almost Cut My Hair, often utilizing a variety of alternate guitar tunings. Though he released his debut solo album, If I Could Only Remember My Name, in 1971, he waited nearly two decades before issuing a follow-up solo LP. Recent years have found him more prolific than ever, releasing four albums in a five-year span. From producing the debut album for then-girlfriend Joni Mitchell, to publicly battling very personal demons, to earning ten Grammy nominations and induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame not once, but twice, David Crosby, against all odds, is a living legend. David, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, how are you? We are uh, surviving, <laughs> trying to navigate a global pandemic. How are you doing with this whole thing? Uh, yeah, with it, have you got an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we do. Uh, we have a ton of time. It's probably the only thing that we have a ton of at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. Totally. Suck. Yeah, it's pretty drastic. I, you know, I, I think if you're watching the figures, you'll see, you know. The first places that it that it got large, eventually will tip over and stop accelerating, and that's the peak. And then mm. we'll be be able to, you know, watch it it go through its cycle and be able to figure out when the cycle's going to roughly end. Right. Yeah. I'm just praying that it's before, uh, you know, uh, August September. That's my next tour, and that's the I really can't lose another one. I've already yeah. lost the. The uh, June, Jul the May June one, and, yeah, uh, right. That's a huge blow to me. I, you you, you got to understand the. You have to set the stage first place. Okay, I'm a working musician. That's what I do. Uh, all right. So, a few years ago, they took uh, records away from us. They, we don't get paid on records anymore. Right. And right. that's they pay us, you know. But it's like you did your job for a month, and they give you a nickel. Right. Uh, it's uh, the proportion is not only wrong; it's insultingly wrong and really bad. Okay, so that took a, that took half my income away. So that's bad. But I still had live performance. I could still make a, a living, barely, but I could make my house payments and I could keep my family fed. No fancy stuff, but I was making it. Yeah. Then this happened. Hmm. So that's that's a hard one, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I, I, you know, I, I still own my own publishing, and I'll get a publishing check at some point here, but it's not going to be anything near what it needs to be to replace all of that. Right. right. That's a very tough thing to, to work with. I'm trying to keep my head above water, you know, because I can't function if I get really down and, and just sit there and hold my head in despair. That's not going to do anything. So right. that's that doesn't work. So I'm... Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, keep my spirits up in, uh, in all the usual ways. Music, friends, you know, uh, all the reading, uh, all that usual stuff. But it's, it's only partly working. I am, uh, in the wee hours of the night, pretty depressed. Yeah, I hear yeah. you. It's, uh, it's definitely a scary time for musicians and, and a lot of other people whose livelihoods are just completely impacted, you know, by this whole thing. It's just absolutely crazy. And on top of that, then you've got the idiot in the presidency doing everything he can to make it worse. He's an ignorant, asshole, racist fool. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, the only thing that, that could go wrong more would be now is, now is when they had the big earthquake. Oh, no, Let's thank not you. Even put that <laughs> out thank <there>. you. <laughs> Jeez. Don't say that, James. <laughs> yeah. That's, Don't say that, James. Pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rewind. Oh, man. Uh, well, now that we've you know put that out there, uh, hopefully we can have a, a little diversion here uh, in this conversation. You know, we can just have a little fun with it. Oh well, then let's talk about women. Well, yeah, we only have uh, about an hour, so I don't know if that's enough time to get into that whole topic. But we're gonna have some fun anyway. I want to start with the song "Set That Baggage Down." From your 2014 album Cross. Walk on, walk on down that road. Walk on, walk on. No need to carry that load. No more, no more. No more, no more. No more, no more. That's a song about letting go of the past. It's about looking toward the future, um, which is really fitting considering that you've released four albums of new material between 2014 and, and 2018. What is it that pushes you to continue to sing and write at the top of your game and, and to do so prolifically at a time when, frankly, there are plenty of artists your age who are just kind of resting on their laurels at this point? Well... It's, uh, uh, I would say pull rather than push, but I am pull. I am, there is force making me want to do it. It's a really good one. It's the joy of creating. Uh, I love writing songs, man. It's, it's probably the thing I'm best at in my life. And I, it's such a wonderful you know, process. Yeah. Uh, what happened to me, and the reason that there has been this surge, is uh, that it, I was... Holding back, uh, towards the end of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I did not feel, you know, friendship with them. I did not feel that it was a safe place to take a song. So I had a few songs saved up. So that, that you know, initiated a pretty good rush when we started Cross. I had stuff already there. Yeah. Uh, but what happened is, and this is where it gets really good, I got really bucky. 
my son, James, who was put up for adoption by his mom uh, when he was born and returned to me when he was about 30 or so, uh, he came back into my life, and he is, a, uh, if anything, a better writer than I am. He's a, definitely a better musician. He's a keyboard player, uh, but we can forgive him for that. And uh, <laughs> uh, and he's a brilliant writer. Okay, now he's the first of several people that came into my life over a period of about two years. He uh, is my best writing partner. I go to him with an idea, and it flowers almost every time. Uh, that's a, a gift. It's like having a magic wand. Hmm. Uh we create songs easily and well. We are halfway through another record now, and we wow. already do have those four in, uh, down there. We've got another one almost ready. Huh. It's, it's a stunning chemistry, okay? And writing is all, with anybody else is a chemistry. I didn't used to do it, hardly at all. I did it a little bit with Stills and a little bit with Nash, not much. Um. But then when they started writing with James, it got really so good because he would take it further than I could take it. Musically, he's definitely better than I am. And mm -hmm. and and we have the same sensibility, so our stuff works with each other. All right, so that's the first enormous good reason for me to be writing at this point in my life. Uh, you're right. A lot of my compatriots, who shall remain nameless, are not. They're either resting on their laurels too much, or, as you said, or they don't have anybody that's willing to say to them, hey, that's not really finished. You need to work harder on that. Hmm. If you only have people in your life that work for you, uh, you may have a problem with having anybody be able to be critical, you know, uh, and, and, and to tone up your work. But... Then, after after James, okay, then I met Michael Leake. Now, Michael Leake is the composer and band leader for the jazz band Snarky Puppy. Right. Uh, also for another uh, world music band called Bocante. And also for the Lighthouse Band, which is me and Michael Leake and Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis. That's my other band. They are all three brilliant writers. Becca might be one of the best writers I've ever encountered in, in my life. Wow. But all three of them are brilliant writers, right? And the same thing happened. The chemistry happened. Uh, we got together to do what was essentially supposed to be a David Crosby solo record. It wound up being called Lighthouse. We really liked working with each other on that record, and there was very good chemistry. So the next time I went back to them, I said, listen, I don't want to do a solo record. I love the chemistry between the, the four of us. I want to do a record of the four of us writing and the four of us singing. And they said, are you sure? And I said, I'm very sure. <laughs> uh, and so that then we made uh, Here If You Listen. Yeah. And frankly, man, it's that. It's that these people came into my life and were so generous with their art and their friendship and their love and, and were so much fun to work with. And, and it came so easily. It was, it wasn't, we didn't have to legislate it into being, we didn't have to negotiate it. It, hmm. it just flowed like water out of a tap. It was easy and 
fun and laughter all the time. Yeah. That, that's how it's supposed to be. That's, right. I remember that distinctly from other encounters, and <laughs> I, know, I know that it can be like that, and so it was like that. Yeah. And that's what's happened. It's been the other musicians in my life that have inspired me. Hmm. Now, it, it, there are other, other musicians besides the one I mentioned who've been inspiring me a lot. Uh, Mark Cohen. Uh, I'm thrilled with Mark Cohen as a writer. Uh, Sean Colvin. Uh, I'm thrilled with Sean Colvin as a writer. Uh, Sarah Jarose. She just she just put out a record, man, or she's now putting out a record right now that I've heard that I'm not supposed to have heard. <laughs> That's beyond belief. The girl is just talented beyond belief. The record that she and and Sarah Watkins and uh, Eva Adonawa put out as I'm with her. Fantastic record. Yeah. That song, Call My Name, I, I probably played it a hundred times. Hmm. Uh, these are really talented people, and they do inspire me. Yeah. Every time I listen to, I mean, you know, there are people that are my mainstays, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, you know, they've, they've set the bar pretty high. So I'm struggling along here in their wake, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to do quality work, but yeah. it's... The, the bar is, for me, the bar is very high. Yeah. Joni yeah. Mitchell was my old lady. I, she used to come home to me, in, and, and I would say, hey, look what I wrote. And I'd sing her my <laughs> best thing that I just wrote, and then she'd sing me three better ones. Jeez. <laughs> 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 so I, I, I really treasure songwriting. Yeah. Uh, it, it's at a, the top end of important shit in my life. Mm-hmm. And and I have been incredibly fortunate. Let's let's go back to the very beginning. I've heard you say before that you weren't really into Elvis as a kid, which is pretty unusual for someone of your generation who went into a rock music career. Um, talk about the music that was impacting you in your formative years. Several things. My family played classical music all the time in the house, uh, a lot. So there's that. And that had a huge effect on me, because yeah. those guys are good. <laughs> <laughs> they are, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that that affected my sense of chord and melody and how things should go. Hmm. Uh, the when when LPs first came out, now that's back when there were seventy eight records in big folio, you know, folders, uh, and you'd stacked them up, uh, and you had a record changer. Uh, we got one of the first long-playing records, and it was a 10-inch LP. Hmm. The first ones were 10-inch, not 12. Hmm. And it was, let's see, the ones we got were Josh White, Odetta, hmm. uh, The Weavers, and uh, um, a South African couple called Mariah and Miranda. Hmm. And that's the four records that we got. Wow. That was a whiz-bang, man, because that was a fuckload of talent right hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, uh, Odetta was one of the best singers, storyteller. You know, she could sing a song and it would move you. She would really get the emotion of the song across to you, the story of the song across to you beautifully. So with Josh White, Josh White is also the reason that I I have been sort of very sensitive about racism uh, uh, my whole life. Uh, I was 
listening to the record, and I went to my mommy, and I said, Mommy, what is he saying about the, the strange fruit? What are the strange fruit? And uh, she started crying. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, and she had to explain to me that there were human beings who didn't like other human beings because of what color they were yeah. so much that uh, sometimes they would hang them from a tree and kill them. I didn't know about racism. I didn't know that human beings could do stuff like that to each other. And uh, it made a deep and lasting impression. Uh, My mom was very much of a humanist. Uh, I didn't know what that word meant, but that's who she was. And and she's the one who loved the folk music and and bought those records. Uh, My brother was into jazz. And he turned me on to uh, Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, Dave Brubeck, uh, that era, late 50s jazz. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you hit that stream, all roads lead to train and miles. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh, and they all had a very powerful effect on me, particularly the keyboard players. Bill Evans, hmm. uh, I can't get the words out of my head. Uh, McCoy Tyner, just stuck in there. Uh, brilliant, brilliant chord shapes these guys yeah. would work. Yeah. Very, very strong stuff. So that's the early stuff, folk music, classical music, and jazz. Yeah. Well, I've read that, that you actually spent some time on the Greenwich Village folk scene before you know, getting your career off the ground in, in Los Angeles. Talk a bit about uh, the scene that was happening in New York at that time and how you were kind of developing and finding your voice, um, as a, as a writer and artist in those early days before the birds. Well, it was a very good and very tough school. These were what what were called basket houses. When I got to the village, uh, the only place that you could just walk in and and actually work were basket houses. There were places Mm -hmm. where you could get up, do a set, and then you would pass a basket around the audience. (laughs) to see if he, they like you. <laughs> and that's a real lesson. Uh, yes, indeedy. Uh, because if you don't get any money in the basket, you don't have dinner. Mm. Right. So you are motivated yeah. to reach your audience. <laughs> really strongly. Yeah. Right. Trial by fire. Uh, and, uh, and it was a very good uh, school for me. You know, I had to understand that I had to reach people. Mm. I had to make them feel something or I wasn't going to get dinner. Right, right. Really simple shit. All right. And, and it trained me to go for the throat, to go for the contact with the people. Hmm. Because that, I found out that's how you do it. Yeah. If you can make them laugh, well, then you can make them cry. Hmm. Wow. If you break the fourth wall, if you talk to people, if you bring them into the little story that you're trying to take them on, the little voyage, you can, you can contact them pretty well. Hmm. And that's where I learned how. Well, you eventually, of course, hooked up with Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark, which led to forming The Birds. And, you know, as everyone knows, you guys exploded onto the scene with cover songs like Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. But, you know, the first time that you hit the charts as a songwriter was with Eight Miles High, which is credited to you and and Roger and Gene. But, you know, that song and the B-side, which was another of yours called Why, that's really credited with kind of kicking the doors open for that psychedelic rock thing. Eight miles high, and when you touch down, you find that it- 
you mentioned that your brother had kind of turned you on to, to jazz. What was some of the, the music that was really capturing your attention at that time that was influencing that kind of psychedelic strain on those uh, Birds records once you started kind of writing for the band? Well, there is a thread there. There is a thread there, particularly with 8 Miles High. We were in a, uh, you know, a, a traveling camper oh, yeah. thing yeah. with beds and, and yeah. all that stuff in it, right? Uh, and uh, we had a reel-to-reel set up at the back end of the, of the thing, back, uh, facing right down the length of, of the camper. Uh, we were playing at that point John Coltrane, Africa Brass, <laughs> that record. Yeah. Okay. And we would play it many times. Uh, sometimes uh, there were funny moments. I remember pulling up to a railroad crossing and watching a train full of coal go across in front of us while we were listening to Coal Train <laughs> and thinking how cosmic it Perfect. was. Right. <laughs> but, but what it did, what it did, man, was it it injected Coal Train into our heads. Yeah. Uh, and it injected Coal Train into Roger McGuinn's head. He had been listening to John Coltrane solo. So when we started to do Eight Miles High, when he went for the solo, you know, he just he went for John Coltrane. Nobody had ever done that before on any pop music ever. Yeah, Roger, Roger has an absolute genius for taking, for synthesis, for taking disparate streams of music and folding them together to make something new. He's an absolute genius at it, hmm. uh, and um, and that's what we did with Si and that's where it came from. It came from John Coltrane. That's all it came from John Coltrane. Wow. And it seems like the on the flip side, why there seems to be some Indian music influence on there as well. I had been turned on to. Uh, Rav Shankar. Uh, well, somebody had just given me his record, and I went to England with it in my suitcase, and I gave it to George Harrison. Really? Oh, wow. So that worked out okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he liked Indian music. He, he, liked, uh, he went to India. He liked India. He met a teacher there, a guru that he started working with, and... Uh, he came back and he told me about this guru and said, you know, I really think this guy might have a glimpse of what's going on. And I said, I wanted to tell him, take it with a grain of salt, because mm-hmm. I'm a very skeptical fellow about that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and I couldn't, because it was George. <laughs> uh, so I wrote the song Laughing to George oh, wow. about that. Interesting. Saying that, that you know, I, I understand you met somebody that, that seems like he knows what's going on, 
But truthfully, the wisest person I've ever seen was just a child laughing in the sun. Wow. Huh. Wow. I had no idea. That's where that song came from. You know, Gene Clark was the primary songwriter in The Birds for the first couple albums. But when he left, Ewan McGuinn and Chris Hillman suddenly had to fill that void. And by the group's fourth album, Younger Than Yesterday, we start seeing more of your songs like Renaissance Fair, Everybody's Been Burned, and the single Lady Friend, which became your only solo written song to be released as the A-side of a bird single. With Gene's departure from the group, in what ways did the pressure of having to come up with material impact your development as a writer? It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a pressure. We, it was a desire. We wanted to write right from the beginning. We just didn't know how. Huh. Uh, Chris and Roger and I all wanted to write, uh, and we all did, and yeah. we all started writing. Um, Gene had a, just such a gift for it, man. He did, the main thing about Gene was... He didn't know the rules at all. He yeah. didn't know nothing about music. He didn't. He never, never had a music lesson in his mm. life. He knew what he liked, and he, he kept trying to sound like that. Yeah. And and he had a gift for it. And so we had really good songs uh, right. early on, and and the rest of us hadn't learned how yet. <laughs> but right. by the time you get to younger than yesterday, yeah, we're we're mm. we're making up songs. Yeah, no question. What do you, what do you, you know, because it, it was a relatively short period of time. What do you credit as um, what really helped you guys learn how to, how to put together songs in the right kind of way? We loved songs, man, and we had all these enormously talented people right in front of us showing us how to do it. Bob Dylan right in front of you writing <laughs> those words. Right, yeah. Now, I, I don't think Bob's a great singer. Nobody does. <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think he's a great musician. Nobody thinks he's a great musician. Right. But he's one of the best poets we ever had, Absolutely. ever. <laughs> right. And and he was doing it right there in front of me. To dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free. I, I want to write like that. Mm. I want to be like that. Yeah. That's the shit. And, uh, and, and it was immensely inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Joni. Oh, yeah, my old oh. lady. Oops. She's just, she's, I think, arguably... As good a poet as Bob, and and uh, ten times the musician he is, no question about it. So, these are the people that were setting the bar around me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, McCartney was already writing. Man, McCartney's writing just fucking floors me because he can write Day Tripper, and then he can he can write, uh, you know, Eleanor Rigby. It's mm. just one of the most brave songs I've ever heard. Nobody else writes about those right. people. Yeah, nobody else would have dared. It's really brilliant writing. Yeah. You know, and this is what was around me. So, of course, I wanted to be like that. Of course, I, I mean, that shit stretches you. And yeah, those people yeah. are cooking. Well, during the recording of The Bird's fifth album, The Notorious Bird Brothers, you guys began recording a song of yours called Triad, um, which was about a three-way relationship and wound up not being completed uh, in the studio at the time. You both stand there, your long hair. 
that story has been told is that the song became something of a touch point for tensions between you and your bandmates that ultimately resulted in your departure from the group. Has that been overinflated or was there really something about that song in particular that caused this major split? I don't think so. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think it was a minor thing. You know, hmm. they didn't like it. Yeah. Roger and Chris are both a lot straighter than I am. Uh, they're both Christians. And they're both uh, a lot squarer than I am. Um, so it was a little offensive, you know, that way, because it's, you know, sexually libertarian, you know, at least. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't think it was important, anywhere near as important as the legend has it. Yeah. I think that what drove us apart was simply that we were, I was growing just as fast as I possibly could away from them and into becoming who I became in in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, a, yeah. a writer and uh, and a contributing force and a lead singer. I want to talk about Joni for a second, um, since you just mentioned her a moment ago. You know, part of being a great songwriter is recognizing the greatness of other writers and being inspired by it, just, you know, like you were saying. Um, and I know that in 1967, you produced her first album, Song to a Seagull. Um, talk about how you got to know uh, Joni Mitchell, and what it was about her songs that really impressed you in those early days? Everything. The words, the chords, the melodies, everything. I walked into a coffee house in Florida, and she was on stage, and she was singing Michael from Mountains, or Both Sides Now, or one of those. Yeah. And I just, I was gobsmacked. I didn't know anybody could do that, let alone was doing it. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, and I fell for, you know, quite naturally, we all did. Yeah. Everybody that was, every guy in the room fell for her. <laughs> right. Uh, and you know, I uh, I don't regret it. It was tumultuous at best. You know, it was like um, I describe it to most people as falling into a cement mixer. <laughs> um, was uh, emotionally turbulent. Let's let's right. go with that. Right. Uh, uh, but I. Uh, you know, again, what could possibly stimulate you more to write well than to have somebody writing that well right in front of you? Sure. Yeah. You want to be like that. You want to do that. Well, that uh, 1993 album that you did, Thousand Roads, has got a song on there that, that you wrote with Joni called Yvette in English that she also put mm. on her one of her records the following year. He met her in a French cafe. Slipped in sideways like a cat. Sidelong glances, what a wary little stray. She sticks in his mind like that. Saying, I'm not really aware of of much material that you guys co-wrote together. I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, I think it's the only one. I I don't know if she wrote many times with anybody else. I think yeah. maybe she's tried a couple with a couple of jazz guys. 
but I'm not sure. Uh, I know I had a, I was writing with a lot of people at that point. I was pretty excited with the idea of writing with people, and that she was the best writer I knew. So I had a one started, uh, and I sent it to her, a set of words. And she said, oh, maybe. And she sent me back that. <laughs> yeah. And she had taken it and just run for the horizon. Oh. You know, she's as good as she is. Yeah. I'm very proud of that song. Mm. I love her version. I love my version. I think it's fucking wonderful. Yeah, it's a great song. You mentioned uh, Michael League's influence on you as somebody who came into your life that you started writing with in recent years. Um, thinking about him and thinking about James and thinking about Joni, there's this thread that has run through your career, which is a love of great songs and an admiration for other songwriters that you respect. And you don't seem to be a guy who operates in a vacuum, but you, you draw this great energy and inspiration from having other creative people in your orbit. Um, and oddly enough, I actually think that's actually kind of rare for somebody who's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It seems that many of your peers are less collaborative and kind of view themselves as an island. I, I agree and I don't get it. Huh. Yeah. I think it's a very, I think it's very, I think, well, a lot of, a lot of the reasons that, that they do it are crass and I don't want to put people down, but I huh. think a lot of the times it's because they don't want to share the money or they don't want to share the credit. Right. Hmm. You know, their ego's involved, and, like, they want to say, I wrote every bit of that. <laughs> well, okay, you know, uh, I, I'm i not hung up that way. Yeah. I don't mind sharing the credit, and I don't mind sharing the money. I didn't mm. do it for money in the first place. Yeah. I did it to create songs. I love them. I love them. They're mm. wonderful, lifting, beautiful devices, and they're one of the greatest ways to communicate ideas on the planet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I... I I'm happy with how it worked, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's just refreshing to see somebody who's who's more of a collaborative mindset, even after many decades, rather than a a lone ranger, you know, or competitive kind of mindset. Um, you, you know, it, well, it's you know, sometimes it can be a very good thing, and sometimes it's from a very good place. Like James Taylor doesn't write with other people, but he writes beautifully by himself. Yeah, right. he, it's just a natural thing. For me to write with other people i like it <laughs> um when crosby stills and nash released the self-titled debut album in 1969 um it included three of, of your original songs one of which was wooden ships which you wrote with paul kantner and, and stephen stills wooden ships on the water I understand that that was actually written on your boat, uh, for those who don't know, a, a legendary uh, schooner called the Mayan, um, which played a part in inspiring several of your songs, I believe, uh, The Lee Shore, Page 43, Carry Me. Um, what, what was it about your boat that played such an important role in your actual creativity and songwriting process? If you're on a boat, on a big sailboat, it affects you emotionally very strongly. Um, but it, I would have been doing it anywhere, man. I would have been doing it in a pup tent uh, if that's where I was. Yeah. It, it wasn't the boat so much. It's just that's that's the thrill that I had right then was creating these songs because I love them. 
I would imagine there's something too about just the freedom of being on the water and, and being in a headspace that, that kind of opens you to that kind of creativity where you're yeah, not distracted. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you're, you're in, a, you're in a, a, a very, very different space than most people do. There's no traffic and there's no TV and there's no, uh, you know, it's, it's a whole other, a whole other ball of wax. But I, I think I would have been doing it anywhere. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about another of your songs on that first CSN album, Guinevere, which, like many of your songs, was written in an unusual guitar tuning. And I think to this day, um, still experimenting with different tunings is is an important staple of your process and kind of how you work. Um, talk about how that kind of functions for you in terms of getting your creative juices flowing and in terms of experimenting with different tunings. When you are a songwriter... Your instrument, whichever it is, guitar or piano, is, you know, you, you, you're very involved with it. Okay, uh, now, when you take a guitar and you tune the bottom string, the bottom E, down to a D, so you can play in D and have that big resonant D down on the bottom, Right. that's the beginning of a very slippery slope. <laughs> 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 because you can retune the guitar. Yeah, yeah. You can tune it entirely differently. And it gives you different chord shapes. You have to work out different chord shapes, brand new ones for each tuning. But you get a different sound, different inversions of the chord, really different sounds. And that's what uh, Guinevere is. That's why it sounds as odd as it does. Very, very strange tuning. Very, you know, it goes four, four, six, eight, seven, four each verse. Hmm. It's an odd song. Guinevere green eyes. Like yours, my lady, like yours. She'd walk down through the garden in the morning after it rained. But I think it's very natural to me, man. I do it almost all the time now. I, I very rarely write in regular tuning now because... The open tunings give me shit I can't play other uh, in regular tuning. I'm, yeah. I'm not good enough to do it in a regular tuning, but I can do it when the strings are arranged in a different order. <laughs> and that's a thrill for me. So how many guitars do you have to take when you go on the road? Mm, let's see, probably about four or five acoustics, and uh, depending on which band I'm in, uh, <laughs> two... two Two strats or two strats and a twelve string. Yeah. Well, when CSN made your second album, obviously Neil Young joined the festivities and added the Y. Um, most of the songs on that record are are written by you know one of you guys solo. Um, once you have four people who are all writing, what is the the democratic process like for figuring out okay what's actually going to make it onto the record? Uh, we used to have what we call the reality rule. You, if you have a song, you get the other guys in a room and you sing it to them, huh. and it either moves them or it doesn't. Wow. It's kind of a tough audience, um, <laughs> but that's how it used to work with, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, we were good enough writers to where you know something we had would pretty much always appeal to the other guys, uh, and uh, that's what we'd start working on. I would imagine that would be a bit of an intimidating 
yeah. process. Yeah. Well, it was because we were competing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. <laughs> right. CSN and CSNY were fully competitive wow. bands. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Fully. All the time. Wow. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you guys weren't necessarily writing a bunch of stuff, you know, together. That is a very different dynamic. Yeah, competing with each other doesn't encourage you to write with the other guy. It encourages you to try to beat the other guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Which, of course, we did try. You mentioned laughing a while ago in reference to George Harrison, um, and that's one of the great songs on your first solo album, If I Could Only Remember My Name. That was a gold record, has continued to endure as a cult classic for decades now. I was Talk a little bit about writing and recording that album, which was your introductory statement to the world as a solo artist apart from a group. I was living on my boat in Sausalito, and uh, I was uh, writing a ton. Uh, I was very happy, uh, and uh, and I had just found a place to live out in Novato, and I was with my girlfriend, uh, Christine, and I was a very happy guy. And uh, we were recording Deja Vu. And then uh, my girlfriend took the cat to the vet and never came home. Hmm. Uh, she died in a car wreck. And uh, and I kind of went down the tubes. Uh, I didn't have any equipment to deal with that hmm. uh, at all. Yeah. I've never dealt with anything like that in my life. And uh, so I was thrown for a loop, started doing really hard drugs, uh, coke and heroin, both. Yeah. And um, it was kind of a really strange time. Uh, I, I, I would wind up sitting on the floor in the middle of the session to, uh, for CSNY for Deja Vu, crying, and uh, but we got through the record, and then I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any place that I could be safely. Yeah. So I stayed in the studio, hmm. and I had these songs. They'd only taken, like, two of my songs. And uh, I, I had these songs, and I just, uh, whoever showed up, you know, I'd call Jerry, and I'd call other people, friends, and whoever showed up was the was who was recording that night. Huh. And Garcia, man, I had a chemistry with Garcia that was so good. My God, it was magical. If we had two guitars, man... It just didn't matter what else was going on in the universe. We could make magic right there, right now. Yeah. All the time, every time. Just He came in almost every night for a long time. I think he knew perfectly well what kind of pain I was in. Hmm. And uh, and uh, he knew that, that the escape was in the music and that we were making really good music, so he kept coming. Yeah. God bless him. Um, well, after Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young split up, 
uh, Ewan Graham made a series of albums as a duo, charted with a, a handful of singles, including your songs Carry Me and Out of the Darkness. Be the light or love will fade away. Be the light or love will fade away. In what ways was writing for a, a duo project a, a different experience than writing for the four-man group? Uh, it was less competitive, but Nash was still competing with me. Uh, 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 there was more camaraderie and less competitiveness. Nash and I were sort of pretty good partners to each other, and uh, at that point, we were still friends, and really good friends, and it was an, a, a very good chemistry. We yeah. had a really spectacular bunch of players around us, and uh, and we made good records. Yeah. So that's good stuff. When Crosby, Stills, and Nash eventually reunited in 1977, you contributed a song called Shadow Captain, which, in the great mysterious way of songwriters, I understand came to you pretty much fully formed. Um, it's always kind of hard to wrap your brain around the songwriting process, but tell us about that experience. I was about 100 miles off the coast of California. Uh, I was sailing from San Francisco to Santa Barbara. Uh, I was off watch. Uh, it was like uh, probably 3 o'clock in the morning. I woke up, and I had a, a yellow legal pad in the shelf next to me. I took it down. I wrote the whole song as you heard it, word for word, no changes, Jeez. start to finish. Wow. Wow. No idea. Had never thought any of it before. Hadn't been working on it before. Didn't, didn't know it was coming. Wow. Jeez. Wrote it just that way. And when it got to the shadow captain or a charcoal ship trying to give the light to slip, I said, oh, Cross, you're all right. This is working. <laughs> and I went back to sleep. Wow. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning, and I knew that I had one of my best sets of words. And I shipped it to Craig Durkee, and he wrote the music. Shadow captain of a charcoal sheet Try to give the light the Craig was one of my first partners that, that I wrote with really well. Yeah. He's a, he's a very good writer. Hmm. Now, was, was he Judy Hensky's husband? Is that right? Yes, that's him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was in the section. Oh, yeah, with yeah. With Sklar and, and those guys. Right, right. You know, I think every songwriter can name, you know, that song or that handful of songs that just kind of spill out of you and you go, well, where did that come from? Uh, but is there a song of yours that you're particularly proud of um, that you would look back on your catalog and say, this is a, another great one, but boy, this one I really had to work for. That was a real craft job rather than a all spilling out. Mm, yes, Rusty and Blue. Hmm. Huh. CPR. I had the music for Rusty and Blue for like three years before I got the words. Jeez, wow. I really had to sweat over that one. 
how did you know, or how do you know when a song like that, that doesn't come so easily, how, what's your internal sensor for knowing, okay, I'm, I'm where I need to be, or can you even describe that feeling? I, you know, I, I don't know what the tipping point would be. You, you play it to people, uh, as you're doing it, you know, and, and when you start seeing people look at you and go with that expression on their faces going, holy shit, <laughs> then you think, well, I'm probably in, in pay dirt here. Right. I guess we're there. You wrote a song called Delta on Crosby, Stills, and Nash's Daylight Again album in 1982 that I understand Jackson Brown had a role in encouraging you to finish. Talk a bit about how that one came together. Yeah, I I, uh, I showed it to him what I had, and he said that was, uh, he thought he liked it a lot. He thought it was a very good song, and he wanted me to finish it. And uh, uh, he... Uh, I said, well, I'm writing it on piano, and I don't have one here. And he drove me over to uh, Warren Zevon's house, huh. uh, who had a piano, and yeah. uh, sat me down at Warren's piano, and uh, and sort of almost begged me to finish it before I uh, I got up. He said, hmm. don't, 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 just stay with it this time. Don't huh. get up. Stay here and finish the fucking song because it's an important song. Yeah. So when a uh, half hour later, I wanted to go get loaded. He looked at me, you know, and, and said, come on, man, you promised. Stay and, and do it. And I, so instead of going to get loaded, I stayed and I finished the song. Wow. wow. And thank you, Jackson. A fair running rivers of choice and chance and time stops me Well, you know, it's no secret that you publicly battled some very personal demons uh, in the 80s and wound up spending the better part of a year in, in jail in Texas. Um, and, and after kicking hard drugs and, and starting over once again, you reemerged with your second solo album, Oh Yes I Can, in 1989. There's some great songs on there, like Tracks in the Dust. Um, and I'm curious, after having functioned as a songwriter, you know, for many years under the influence of, of heavy drugs, was it a frightening prospect to kind of return to the writing process in a completely different headspace? No, not at all. It was better. The, 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 the you know, the clear-headedness and the lack of, of being driven to get more drugs uh, gave enormous impetus to the writing process. It got much better. I would imagine it gave you more time as well. Well, that too, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about the song Hero, uh, which you wrote with Phil Collins and had a top five hit with on Billboard's adult contemporary chart in 1993. What can you tell us about that one? I said to Phil, let's write a song together. And he said, okay. (laughs) All right. And uh, I said, here, how about these words? And uh, he liked them. So he wrote the music. And I asked him, would he produce the record? And he did. And we went to England and we did it. In yeah. their studio there, wow. he's a good guy, man. And uh, he, I was having a really hard time. I had, had a motorcycle wreck, and I had uh, my left ankle broken in four places and in a cast, and my left shoulder broken in four places and in a cast. And so wow. I was a mess. Yeah. And uh, it was a, it was kind of almost like a mercy fuck, but he really, he really did intend to do it, and yeah. and the result was a win. And the reason 
You know, we had already done Another Day in Paradise and a couple other tunes, and, and we knew that there was a chemistry there. So. Um, you talked uh, a little bit earlier about your son, James Raymond, and um, you mentioned Rusty and Blue, which is from uh, the CPR, first CPR album. Um, and you talked about how James is, is you know, such a great writer and, and one of your favorite uh, collaborators. But talk about how, how you and and you know, James kind of began, because I know that obviously, you know, he didn't grow up and you, you weren't in each other's lives. How did you guys kind of start getting together and, and working together? I knew that he existed and I wanted to find him. Hmm. But you can't track from the parent down. You can only track from the, from the kid up. So it waited until he wanted to know who his dad was. And when he found out, he found a way to get a hold of me and uh, we met. And he did the one most wonderful thing. And it, normally those meetups go badly. Right. Uh, one or both of the people brings too much baggage to the thing, and it's, how come you didn't stay with me and Mom? We weren't good enough for you? You know, that kind of contention and yeah. that kind of attitude. And so they don't work. Uh, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He gave me a clean slate and let me earn my way into his life. And hmm. the result was the best musical partnership I've ever had. It's amazing when you think about nature versus nurture i mean here's a guy you share dna with but did not share his growing up experience and to think that you both are attracted to music and resonate so strongly uh, it's it's pretty yeah if somebody tells you it's not genetic you tell them to come talk to me <laughs> right <laughs> right um I want to talk about uh, Before Tomorrow Falls on Love from your 2017 album, Sky Trails. That's one that you wrote with Michael McDonald and um, great song. And, and you know, I, I would say that you're kind of at the point in your career now where you can collaborate with, with anybody you want to collaborate with. Um, how do you kind of find these opportunities or, or or how do you sort of decide what you're going to pursue and not pursue in terms of collaborating with, with outside writers? Uh, instinct as much as anything else. And I know writer, writer strengths, you know, I kind of, I, I know what a writer has written before. I know what, what kind of stuff he's really strong at yeah. or she is. And I, I try to throw the curve into that, you know, in their direction. Uh, Michael, I kind of knew that was that might be a, a set that he could work with, and it was. He took those words and built a beautiful record out of them. A cure for all this loneliness Music to balance cold dark man For tomorrow falls all love. Well, we're really hitting on this theme of collaboration, but I just recently saw an interview with Jason Isbell talking about how he's been working with you recently. Well, again, songwriting is what did it. What happened was somebody said, you got to listen to this country guy. And I said, oh, man, Nashville's just a factory. They crank that crud out. <laughs> oh, my truck's broke. My mama don't love me. <laughs> and he said, no, listen to this guy, Jason Isbell. He can write. So I listened, and I, and I ran into this song, If We Were Vampires. Yeah. Which is really fucking not about vampires. <laughs> and uh, it's a beautiful love song, man. Mm. And it floored me. I hadn't heard anybody out of Nashville write anything close to that real yeah that genuine 
uh, in a long fucking time. Hmm. And uh, so I, I started following him, and I noticed in some of the posts that he was doing uh, Ohio. Hmm. So I sent him a message saying, you know what, uh, I don't know you, but I wanted to tell you, I really think it's great that you're doing Ohio. That is a song that needs to be sung in America right now. Yeah. And he sent me back a message saying, I agree, why don't you come sing it with me? Wow. So I sent him a message back saying, what time does the bus leave? <laughs> and he sent me back a message saying, I'm not kidding, I'll send you plane tickets for you and your wife if you will come here to, to Newport Folk Festival. And sing it with me. And I said, you're on. Well, and I went there, and I liked him tremendously. He's a wonderful guy. And mm-hmm. his wife, Amanda, is a wonderful woman. They are really nice people. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And we got along famously, and we had a blast. Uh, and we just about did structural damage to the place when, <laughs> when I came on and sang Ohio with it. That's great. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, we killed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was a, it was a joy. He's, uh, his whole strength, I mean, he's a very good guitar player and he's a very good singer, both. But the, the place where he separates the men from the boys is in the writing. Yeah. Yeah. He writes better than almost anybody in Nashville. He, he really got it down. Yeah. He's writing real shit that, that makes you feel stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's rare and precious. I, I think that, that what's, again, so fascinating to me is, you know, you uh, having admiration for a guy like Jason or, or even for, you know, Michael League and Becca Stevens and, and Michelle Willis, your, your collaborators um, in the Lighthouse Band. You know, these are folks who are in their mid 30s. I mean, technically, they could be your grandkids. Um, yet you draw all this excitement. And of course, I would expect all them to be excited and go, hey, we get to work with David Crosby. But it is just so refreshing to hear your excitement about working with people who are so much younger. It's the songs. It's the songs, man. If you write that well, I can't ignore you. Yeah. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter if you just got here off the, off the, the melon truck from the country. <laughs> if, if, it, it, uh, you, if you write that well, I'm going to notice you. I'm looking all the time. Mm, yeah. I look all the time. And I've got, I've encouraged this thing on, on, on the net where people feel that they can send me their brother's band or the song that they think they just wrote. Yeah. And I'll give it, you know, a few seconds of listen. And if there's something there, I'll actually listen to the whole thing and I'll tell them what they think, yeah. which is kind of valuable. Mm. So I've got people doing it all the time. Mm. And I'm looking all the time. I find shit. People send me stuff, man. I mean, it's bounce. I find the Staves. Staves, three girls in England. Unbelievable harmony singers. Really good. Uh, uh, there's three in, in Canada, uh, and it's, they're called uh, Au Pairs, the Au Pairs. <laughs> yeah. Three girls in Canada. Unbelievably singing together. Really wonderful. I, I run into this shit on the net now because people think that I treasure songs, and I fucking do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking all the time, because truthfully, you know, that sad song that I sang at the beginning of this whole conversation about, uh, well, we used to make money off of records, and now we don't, hmm. and, well, that's much harder on the new people coming up, the young people coming up. It's harder on them than it is on me. Hmm. Yeah. I can still go out and sell some tickets if we don't have a 
a pandemic going on, right. I can normally sell some tickets and make enough money to pay my rent and, yeah. and feed my family. Uh, these kids can't. Yeah. They, they're being absolutely stifled by the, the fact that they can't make any money off of records at all. You know, they don't they don't make enough live to, to do more than put gas in the van and buy everybody in the band a cheeseburger and drive another 180 miles to go play to 35 people. They're not making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And that's a bad thing. We need to make it better for young writers yeah. to come up. Yeah. If you were starting out today and, and you were 19 years old now, knowing knowing what you know, would you be able to stop yourself from doing it anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I love it very much. I think mm. I probably would do it anyway, but it, it's, whew, man, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. No question. Well, I think it's killer that you are on Twitter and, and encouraging people and championing these young writers. I know it means the world to them, and it's just inspiring to see that you've taken that posture and are, and you love songs now as much as you loved songs, you know, 50 years ago. Um so, yeah, I do. you know, thank you for for taking some time to talk songwriting today and uh, to give us some insights on your own career and process. It's been really great. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. understand, cause that is something everybody everywhere